Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere and Happy New Year, a month late. My name is Heather, your guide for all things Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll. This week with an emphasis on the latter, Lewis Carroll. We're going to talk about his letters. Ladder, letters, that's totally intentional. The letters Lewis Carroll liked to use were A, B, C, D. I'm just kidding. I'm talking about the letters he wrote and received. His correspondence with friends, family, publishers, illustrators, fans. If this is your first time tuning in and you were all excited and wearing a pinafore or possibly a giant hat and have the tea kettle all fired up and, are, and you're thinking letter writing, ugh, what about Wonderland? Well, you can head back to episode one of Alice is Everywhere to visit Wonderland or go back to episode 15 to dive through the looking glass. However, believe me, the subject of Lewis Carroll and his letters is far more interesting than it may sound on the surface. I mean, it stands to reason that a hilarious, whimsical author would also write hilarious, whimsical letters. And as it happens, he also wrote a letter-writing guide that is downright delightful, which we are going to read in just a few minutes. First off, I cannot emphasize enough, oh my gosh, did Lewis Carroll write and receive a ton of letters. We know this because he kept a meticulous register of all his letters from January 1st, 1861, when he was 29 years old, to 1898. The last letter was recorded just six days before he died. I actually just googled who invented the spreadsheet because I fully expected the answer to be Lewis Carroll and his letter register. The reason why I expected to see that Lewis Carroll invented the spreadsheet is because this letter register that he started in 1861 is so incredibly complicated. He numbered the letters and dated them, of course. He said who each letter was to or from. He wrote a summary or precise of each letter. But then he had a whole system of cross-referencing with past letters as well. And the whole thing just makes my head swim. Are you ready for your head to swim? The last entry in his letter register, dated January 8th, 1898, again, six days before he died, was numbered 98,721. That's 98,721. That's how many letters he wrote and or received in his life. What am I saying in his life? He didn't even start keeping records until he was 29, so it was a lot more than that. This letter registry consisted of 24 volumes, handwritten notebooks. Unfortunately, none of those volumes survives. I could not find out any information regarding what happened to them. Maybe they disappeared into a big black hole along with some of Lewis Carroll's diaries. We know what the registry looked like, though, because he showed some sample pages in an essay he published in 1890 entitled Eight or Nine Wise Words About Letter Writing. I'm going to share those wise words with you in just a moment. But for some background, this essay, Eight or Nine Wise Words About Letter Writing, was sold as part of a set along with the Wonderland postage stamp case. I often see the Wonderland postage stamp case listed as one of Lewis Carroll's inventions. I think that's a bit of a stretch to call it an invention. I mean, an invention is like the light bulb or the Pythagorean theorem or something, right? The Wonderland stamp case strikes me as more of a craft or maybe a clever marketing idea. It's basically a holder for stamps, but what makes it special to Alice fans is... You know what? I'm going to let Lewis Carroll tell you why it's special as he describes it in Chapter 1 of Eight or Nine Wise Words About Letter Writing. And I quote, Chapter 1 on Stamp Cases. Some American writer has said 
The snakes in this district may be divided into one species, the venomous. The same principle applies here. Postage stamp cases may be divided into one species, the wonderland. Imitations of it will soon appear, no doubt, but they cannot include the two pictorial surprises which are copyright. You don't see why I call them surprises? Well, take the case in your left hand and regard it attentively. You see Alice nursing the Duchess's baby? An entirely new combination, by the way. It doesn't occur in the book. Now, with your right thumb and forefinger, lay hold of the little book and suddenly pull it out. The baby has turned into a pig. If that doesn't surprise you, why, I suppose you wouldn't be surprised if your own mother-in-law suddenly turned into a gyroscope. This case is not intended to carry about in your pocket. Far from it. People seldom want any other stamps on an emergency than penny stamps for letters, six penny stamps for telegrams, and a bit of stamp edging for cut fingers. It makes capital sticking plaster and will stay for three or four washings, cautiously conducted. And all these are easily carried in a purse or pocketbook. No, this is meant to haunt your envelope case, or wherever you keep your writing materials. What made me invent it was a constantly wanting stamps of other values, for foreign letters, parcel post, etc., and finding it very bothersome to get at the kind I wanted in a hurry. Since I have possessed a Wonderland stamp case, life has been bright and peaceful, and I have used no other. I believe the Queen's laundress uses no other. Each of the pockets will hold six stamps comfortably. I would recommend you to arrange the six before putting them in something like a bouquet, making them lean to the right and to the left alternately. Thus, there will always be a free corner to get hold of, so as to take them out quickly and easily, one by one. Otherwise, you will find them apt to come out two or three at a time. According to my experience... The five pence, nine pence, and one shilling stamps are hardly ever wanted, though I have constantly to replenish all the other pockets. If your experience agrees with mine, you may find it convenient to keep only a couple, say, of each of these three kinds in the one shilling pocket and to fill the other two pockets with extra one penny stamps. End quote. So, if you've ever seen a picture of Alice holding the baby in actual baby form and thought, wait, that illustration isn't in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, we only see her holding the baby after it's turned into a pig. The Wonderland postage stamp case is where that baby picture comes from. Let's dive into Lewis Carroll's rules for letter writing. The second chapter is entitled, How to Begin a Letter. If the letter is to be an answer to another, begin by getting out that other letter and reading it through in order to refresh your memory as to what you have to answer and as to your correspondent's present address. Otherwise, you will be sending your letter to his regular address in London, though he has been careful in writing to give you his Torquay address in full. Next, address and stamp the envelope. What? Before writing the letter? Most certainly. And I'll tell you what will happen if you don't. You will go on writing till the last moment, and just in the middle of the last sentence, you will become aware that time's up. Then comes the hurried wind-up, the wildly scrawled signature, the hastily fastened envelope, which comes open in the post, the address, a mere hieroglyphic, the horrible discovery that you've forgotten to replenish your stamp case, the frantic appeal to everyone in the house to lend you a stamp, the headlong rush to the post office arriving hot and gasping just after the box is closed, and finally a week afterwards the return of the letter from the dead letter office marked address illegible. Next, put your own address in full at the top of the note sheet. It is an aggravating thing, I speak from bitter experience, when a friend staying at some new address heads his letter Dover, simply assuming that you can get the rest of the address from his previous letter, which perhaps you have destroyed. Next, put the date in full. It is another aggravating thing when you wish, years afterwards, to arrange a series of letters to find them dated February 17, August 2, without any year to guide you as to which comes first. 
and never, never, dear madam. This remark is addressed to ladies only. No man would ever do such a thing. Put Wednesday simply as the date. That way madness lies. <laughs> that way madness lies. By the way, prepare yourself for a few more jokes at the fairer sex's expense. I don't believe Lewis Carroll was known as a particular sexist, especially given the time period in which he lived. He had several sisters he respected and was very close to. So I'm taking his little jokes as harmless, take my wife please type of jests. Perhaps mistakenly, but honestly, life is too short to get upset at a possibly chauvinist joke from a Victorian author and a letter-writing manual from 1890. That's a bold statement, I know, but I'm, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Life's too short. The next chapter is called How to Get On with a Letter. It is the lengthiest chapter because this is where the eight or nine rules are explained in detail. Let's see what Elsie has to say. Here is a golden rule to begin with. Write legibly. The average temper of the human race would be perceptibly sweetened if everybody obeyed this rule. A great deal of the bad writing in the world comes simply from writing too quickly. Of course, you reply, I do it to save time. A very good object, no doubt, but what right have you to do it at your friend's expense? Isn't his time as valuable as yours? Years ago, I used to receive letters from a friend, and very interesting letters, too, written in one of the most atrocious hands ever invented. It generally took me about a week to read one of his letters. I used to carry it about in my pocket and take it out at leisure times to puzzle over the riddles which composed it, holding it in different positions and at different distances, till at last the meaning of some hopeless scrawl would flash upon me when I at once wrote down the English under it. And when several had been thus guessed, the context would help one with the others, till at last the whole series of hieroglyphics was deciphered. If all one's friends wrote like that, life would be entirely spent in reading their letters. This rule applies especially to names of people or places, and most especially to foreign names. I got a letter once containing some Russian names written in the same hasty scramble in which people often write yours sincerely. The context, of course, didn't help in the least, and one spelling was just as likely as another as far as I knew. It was necessary to write and tell my friend that I couldn't read any of them. My second rule is, don't fill more than a page and a half with apologies for not having written sooner. The best subject to begin with is your friend's last letter. Write with the letter open before you. Answer his questions and make any remarks his letter suggests. Then go on to what you want to say yourself. This arrangement is more courteous and pleasanter for the reader than to fill the letter with your own invaluable remarks and then hastily answer your friend's questions in a postscript. Your friend is much more likely to enjoy your wit after his own anxiety for information has been satisfied. In referring to anything your friend has said in his letter, it is best to quote the exact words and not to give a summary of them in your words. A's impression of what B has said, expressed in A's words, will never convey to B the meaning of his own words. This is especially necessary when some point has arisen as to which the two correspondents do not quite agree. There ought to be no opening for writing as, you are quite mistaken in thinking I said so-and-so, it was not in the least my meaning, etc., etc., which tends to make a correspondence last for a lifetime. A few more rules may fitly be given here for correspondence that has unfortunately become controversial. One is, don't repeat yourself. When once you have said your say fully and clearly on a certain point and have failed to convince your friend, drop that subject. To repeat your arguments all over again will simply lead to his doing the same, and so you will go on like a circulating decimal. 
Did you ever know a circulating decimal come to an end? Another rule is when you have written a letter that you feel may possibly irritate your friend, however necessary you may have felt it to so express yourself, put it aside till the next day, then read it over again, and fancy it addressed to yourself. This will often lead to your writing it all over again, taking out a lot of the vinegar and pepper, and putting in honey instead, and thus making it a much more palatable dish. If, when you have done your best to write inoffensively, you still feel that it will probably lead to further controversy, keep a copy of it. There is very little use months afterwards in pleading, I am almost sure I never expressed myself as you say, to the best of my recollection I said so-and-so. Far better to be able to write, I did not express myself so. These are the words I used. My fifth rule is, if your friend makes a severe remark, either leave it unnoticed or make your reply distinctly less severe. And if he makes a friendly remark, tending towards making up the little difference that has arisen between you, let your reply be distinctly more friendly. If, in picking a quarrel, each party declined to go more than three-eighths of the way, and if, in making friends, each was ready to go five-eighths of the way, why, there would be more reconciliations and quarrels, which is like the Irishman's remonstrance to his gadabout daughter. Sure, you're always going out. You go out three times for once that you come in. My sixth rule, and my last remark about controversial correspondence, is don't have the last word. How many a controversy would be nipped in the bud if each was anxious to let the other have the last word? Never mind how telling a rejoinder you leave unuttered. Never mind your friends supposing that you are silent from lack of anything to say. Let the thing drop as soon as it is possible without discourtesy. Remember, speech is silver, but silence is golden. If you are a gentleman and your friend a lady, this rule is superfluous. You won't get the last word. My seventh rule is, if it should ever occur to you to write jestingly, in dispraise of your friend, be sure you exaggerate enough to make the jesting obvious. A word spoken in jest, but taken as earnest, may lead to very serious consequences. I've known it to lead to the breaking off of a friendship. Suppose, for instance, you wish to remind your friend of a sovereign you have lent him, which he has forgotten to repay. You might quite mean the words, I mention it as he seemed to have a conveniently bad memory for debts, in jest, yet there would be nothing to wonder at if he took offense at that way of putting it. But suppose you wrote, Long observation of your career as a pickpocket and a burglar has convinced me that my one lingering hope for recovering that sovereign I lent you is to say pay up or I'll summons ye. He would indeed be a matter-of-fact friend if he took that as seriously meant. My eighth rule. When you say in your letter, I enclose a check for five pounds or I enclose John's letter for you to see, leave off writing for a moment, Go and get the document referred to and put it into the envelope. Otherwise, you are pretty certain to find it lying about after the post has gone. My ninth rule. When you get to the end of a note sheet and find you have more to say, take another piece of paper, a whole sheet or a scrap as the case may demand, but whatever you do, don't cross. Remember the old proverb, cross writing makes cross reading. The old proverb, you say, inquiringly? How old? Well, not so very ancient, I must confess. In fact, I'm afraid I invented it while writing this paragraph. Still, you know, old is a comparative term. I think you'll be quite justified in addressing a chicken just out of the shell as old boy when compared with another chicken that was only half out. I had to look up what cross-writing was. Apparently, uh, the one-penny stamp was so valuable back in Victorian days. After writing left to right, as you normally would, they would turn the letter around and sort of write perpendicular 
to that. So it would look like a big piece of graph paper when you were done. So it does indeed sound like that would be hard to read. Okay, were you guys as amazed as I was how suitable these rules are for today's electronic communications? How many times have you forgotten an email attachment? I'm going to take Lewis Carroll's advice from now on and attach it immediately and not wait until the end when I most likely forget to attach it and hit send anyway. And how about the tip about making it super obvious when you are joking? In this time of instant messaging and email and text messages, tone is so often lost. Who among us has not been misunderstood because the other person can't tell we're joking? That's a great way to avoid that. Just go over the top a little bit so there's no question it's in jest. And I also really like his multiple reminders to simply put yourself in the other person's place. From these simple answer their questions, address their concerns first, as that's why they wrote to you in the first place, to if you are having a disagreement, imagine if you were on the receiving end of that letter. How would you feel? And of course, if you are writing in anger, put it away and revisit the next day. A golden rule of possibly angry email communications, right? Okay, the last chapter I'm going to read is a quickie. It's called How to End a Letter, and it goes a little something like this. If doubtful whether to end with yours faithfully, or yours truly, or yours most truly, etc., there are at least a dozen varieties before you reach yours affectionately, refer to your correspondent's last letter and make your winding up at least as friendly as his. In fact, even if a shade more friendly, it will do no harm. A postscript is a very useful invention, but it is not meant, as so many ladies suppose, to contain the real gist of the letter. It serves rather to throw into the shade any little matter we do not wish to make a fuss about. For example, your friend has promised to execute a commission for you in town, but forgot it, thereby putting you to great inconvenience, and he now writes to apologize for his negligence. It would be cruel and needlessly crushing to make it the main subject of your reply. How much more gracefully it comes in thus. P.S. Don't distress yourself any more about having omitted that little matter in town. I won't deny that it did put my plans out a little at the time, but it's all right now. I often forget things myself, and those who live in glass houses mustn't throw stones, you know. When you take your letters to the post, carry them in your hand. If you put them in your pocket, you will take a long country walk. I speak from experience, passing the post office twice, going and returning, and when you get home, will find them still in your pocket. Just had to get one more dig at the ladies in there. Hmm? There is actually a fifth chapter of this pamphlet called Unregistering Correspondence that I really don't think I can possibly read out loud to you. It is very detailed instructions on how to set up your own letter register, and I think to hear it out loud would make your eyes glaze over or put you immediately to sleep, which would be really bad if you were driving. I think what I will do is post that on the Alice's Everywhere blog in the next day or two, and if any of you are interested in keeping a letter register, just like our friend Lewis Carroll, you can get the lowdown there. On a future episode, we will actually read some of Lewis Carroll's letters, as I think that is the best way to get to know the man in his own words. There have been several volumes of his letters published, so we will have a lot to choose from. It probably won't be the very next episode, as I want to spread the letters out a little and sandwich them in between more whimsical topics in case any of you were, you know, bored stiff by today's episode. So guys, I have always adhered to Lewis Carroll's second rule of letter writing when communicating with you, my listeners. To review, his second rule is don't fill more than a page and a half with apologies for not having written sooner. 
That's often annoyed me when I've happened upon a blog post that I'm hoping will be really interesting. Instead, it's a bunch of excuses from the author telling us why he hasn't written in his blog lately. You know, what do I care? And I assume you care just as little as to why I haven't posted as many blogs or podcasts in the last few months. And all I will say on that topic is that from now on, you can expect a new podcast on the 1st and 15th of every month with the occasional bonus episode towards the end of the month when life allows. And that's that. As always, please reach out via social media or the Alice's Everywhere website or email me directly at heather at alice'severywhere.com if you have any questions or comments or even topics you'd like to see discussed. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.